Now, that brings us now to the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis. Actually, we have in Genesis 3 the root of sin. In Genesis 4, the fruit of sin. You see, the first two chapters was creation. The next two chapters, 3 and 4, we've labeled sin. We have now the root of sin in chapter 3, chapter 4, the fruit of sin. Then the question arises, how bad is sin? Well, may I say to you that we find that man just wasn't suffering from blood poisoning. Some little something hadn't happened to him. May I say to you that chapter 4 reveals how much had really happened to the man than that he had by his disbelief and his disobedience. Now he's turned away from God and he's sinned in such a way that he's brought upon himself and his race the judgment because you and I are given the same kind of nature. We have the same nature that our father has. And I tell you, Papa Adam has given us a pretty bad nature, and that's for all of us. That is something we need to see here. And it's revealed in the story of the two sons of Adam and Eve. Now, they had more children than this, but we're only given these two here at this time. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. Now, this is Genesis 4.1. And this reveals the fact that Adam and Eve certainly did not anticipate that the struggle was going to be long. When Cain was born, why, she said, I've gotten the man from the Lord. God said that the seed of the woman, and here he is. But he wasn't. He was a murderer. He was no savior at all. And it'll be a long time before the Savior comes. And friends, after a minimum of 6,000 years, and if you really want to know the truth, I think it's been longer than that. The struggle's been going on between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, will you notice? And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was the keeper of the sheep, but Cain was the tiller of the ground. Here are the two boys now that we're looking at. Now, will you notice it says in process of time. Actually, it means at the end of days, which would mean on the Sabbath day. I think on the day that God had rested. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought. And the idea of brought here means to an appointed place. So they are bringing an offering to God to an appointed place to worship. And all this would indicate, of course, they're doing it by revelation. In fact, I know they are. You say, how do you know? Well, if when we turn to the 11th chapter of Hebrews, we read, "...by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain." By faith. How could he offer it by faith? Well, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So God had to give his word about this, or this boy could never have come by faith. And that's the way he came. Now, the other boy didn't come that way. But we find here that Cain brought the fruit of the ground. And there's nothing wrong with the fruit. Don't think that he brought the leftovers. He's not giving old clothes to the mission now. I think that the fruit he brought would have won the blue ribbon in any county fair or state fair in the country. He brought delicious fruit, and he brought that as an offering to the Lord. And Abel, he also brought the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Now, the thing that Cain did, somebody says, I don't see anything wrong in it at all. Well, Jude, in his epistle, the 11th verse says, speaking of apostates in the last days, they've gone in the way of Cain. Well, what is the way of Cain? Cain, when he brought an offering to God, he didn't come by faith. He came on his own. And the offering that he brought denied that human nature is evil. God said, you bring that little sacrifice which will point to the Redeemer who's coming in the world. 
and you come on that basis. Don't come by bringing the works of your own hand. And it also denies that man was separated from God. He acted like everything was all right. And that's what liberalism does today. Talks about the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Friends, things are not all right with us today. We're not born children of God. We're born again children of God. Man is separated from God. Cain refused to recognize that, and multitudes today refuse to do that. Then the third thing, he denied that man cannot offer works to God. He felt he could. God says, it's not by works of righteousness which we've done. It's according to his mercy he saved us. And we find that Actually, the difference between these two boys wasn't a character difference at all. It's the offering that they brought. These two boys had the same background. They had the same heredity. They had the same environment. There wasn't that difference between them. Don't tell me that Cain got his bad disposition from an alcoholic uncle. He didn't have an uncle. And don't say that Abel got his from a very fine ain't on his mother's side. The other was on the father's side, of course. But that wasn't true. You see, they just didn't have aunts and uncles then. And they had the same heredity and same environment. The difference is in the offering. And that offering makes the difference in man today. And no Christian takes the position that he is better than anyone else. The thing that makes him a Christian is... He recognizes that he's a sinner like everyone else and that he needs an offering. He needs a sacrifice. He needs someone to take his place and die. And Paul says in Romans 3:26, "...whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood." And therefore, Paul again could write, "...they being ignorant of God's righteousness, they go about to establish a righteousness of their own. And that's the picture of multitudes of people today. They are attempting through religion and joining a church and doing something that they make themselves acceptable to God. May I say, God's righteousness can only come to you because you have to have a perfect one. It can only come to you through Christ providing it to you. He was delivered for our offenses. He was raised for our justification, that is, for our righteousness. He was the one who took our place. He was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And that's the righteousness. Paul says that I might be found in him not having mine own righteousness. That's Cain. But the righteousness which is by faith. Jesus Christ. That's Abel, if you please. Why did Cain get angry? We'll look at that next time. We have now come to the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis. And if you have your Bible, and we'll turn there to the sixth verse. And we have seen that Cain and Abel have come together to worship God. And these two boys that were identical, I think, some actually think they were twins. I think that was the position of the late Dr. Harry Rimmer. But I think they were even closer than twins because of the fact they had no bloodstream that reached way back on both sides that might cause a difference. They were the sons of Adam and Eve. But there's a great divergence between the two, and it's not necessarily a character divergence. It happened to be on the basis of one accepted because of his sacrifice, which he brought by faith. The other, Cain, brought his without any recognition at all. Now we find that Cain is angry. Verse 6, And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? Why is he angry? Well, notice what he said. Let me read on what God says, and then we'll go on. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. 
and under thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Now, the important thing to notice is that Cain was angry. Why was he angry? Well, he's angry enough that he's going to slay his brother, and back of murder, always there's anger. Our Lord said, well, if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. And back of anger is jealousy. Back of jealousy is pride. And spiritual pride means there's no sense of sin whatsoever in that. You will recall that James put it in language like this in James 1.15. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So this man here is angry, and it led to murder. But back of that was his jealousy and also his pride. And God deals with him like that. He says, if you do well, shall you not be accepted? Actually, the meaning is better to translate like this. Shalt thou not have excellency? That seems to me to be a much better translation. And what it means is this, that the eldest son always occupied a place of preeminence. And this boy thought, now he'd lose that. God says, there's no reason for you to lose it if you do well. And what would be to do well would be to bring that which God had accepted from Abel, a sacrifice and the acknowledgment that he was a sinner, but not this boy. He's just angry, you see. And he says, sin lieth at the door. Now, there are those that have interpreted that as means sin offering lies at the door. That is, there's the little lamb. Now, that, may I say to you, it makes sense, all right, because that was true. But I don't think it means sin offering here. Up to this time and beyond this time, in fact, up till Moses, as far as I can tell from the Word of God, there was no sin offering. You find a sin offering, instructions given for it in the book of Leviticus in the first part, where you have these five offerings, and one of them is a sin offering. And the sin offering did not come into existence until the law was given. You remember that that is the thing that Paul had said in Romans 3.20, by the law is the knowledge of sin, so that the offerings that were brought up to that were burnt offerings. You find Job in his day, which obviously was before Moses, he brought a burnt offering. It was not in any way a sin offering. And I think if you go through the Scripture, you'll find that that is true. And it is said of Cain, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. Well, to do well would be to bring the kind of offering that Abel had, and that would be a burnt offering. That would be the one that was offered, and you find Abraham offering that type. And as we say, there could be no sin until the law was given. That is, sin would not become a trespass against law until then. And therefore, you'll notice God actually protected this man. God talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother, and he slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And it's practically an impudent answer, as you can see. He had, frankly, no regard at all. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? You see, he's trying to cover it. And the Scripture says there's nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and neither hid that will not be known. That's something to think over if you have any secret sins. You better deal with them down here. 
because they're all going to come out in his presence someday anyway. And he already knows about them. He just well tell him about them. Couldn't hide it from him anyway. And therefore, this fellow tries to say that he's not guilty. Am I my brother's keeper? What an impudent answer. And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And the writer to the Hebrews uses it in Hebrews 12:24, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood spoke of murder committed. The blood of Christ speaks of redemption. It speaks of salvation. Now I read on in verse 11 of chapter 4 of Genesis, And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. And when thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. The earth today, by man's use, loses its fertility. It has to be renewed as man goes along in the use of the land. Verse 13, And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Well, why didn't he then, if it's greater than he can bear, why didn't he just turn to God and confess his sin and cast himself upon God? It was too great for him to bear. But God was providing a Savior for him if he'd only turn to it. Verse 14, Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. And he says now that he's to be hidden from the face of God. And that's exactly, of course, what happened. That was the suggestion here in verse John 3:12. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, slew his brother. Wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brothers righteous. That is the picture that's presented to us. And he's now hidden from the face of God. But now notice God protects him. And this is strange. God is actually harboring a murderer, a criminal. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. I don't know what the mark is. There have been a lot of speculation, and I don't know why I should add my speculation to all of this. But God protects him. There's no law given. He's a sinner, but he's not a transgressor because there's been no law given about murder, you see. But his great sin is he didn't bring the offering that was acceptable to God. His deeds were evil. In what way? What he brought to God. And he manifested that evil nature in slaying his brother. Now, we find him moving out from God and establishes a civilization that is apart from God altogether. And the children of Cain establish a godless civilization. Let me just lift out two or three things out of that and we'll pass on. We find in verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and he dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. I know a lot of folk in church that dwell in the land of Nod during church, but frankly, I don't know where the land of Nod really is. I've often wondered just where it is. Now, again, there's speculation about this. But he went out. He moved out of that area. And Cain knew his wife. She conceived bare Enoch. He built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Men been doing that ever since. They like to call cities by their own names, streets by their own names. And even in Christian work, you have schools named for individuals. Men love to do that. Now, whether they are Christian or after the order of Cain, 
But here's where it all began, and here's where urban life began, city life. Built it a city, and he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And the cities have become one of the biggest problems that man has today. The cities, they say, are dying, and yet the people are flooding to the cities from all over this land, in fact, from all over the world. Now we find here there are other things in this section I'll just lift out because I think they're important to lift out. And Lamech took unto him two wives. Here's the beginning of polygamy, two wives. And the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. And we could have a lot of fun here with these two, but I don't know whether I should spend time with that or not because of the fact that we would like to move right on. But it might be well to notice this man now does that. That also is contrary to what God intends, what God had for man. And you'll never find anywhere in the Scripture that God approves of polygamy. The thing is that you read the accounts accurately, you find out he condemns it. He gives the record of it because he's giving us a historical record here. And we find that is the basis on which it's given to us here. Now, actually, Ada means pleasure or adornment. And she was the first one to make it to the beauty parlor, I guess. And Zilla to hide. She was a coquette. My, what two girls he had for wives. No wonder he had problems. And you wonder why. Now, later on, we'll see here something happened. Then we find something else began. Here's the beginning of civilization, the Canaanitic civilization. Verse 20 of Genesis 4. Ada bar Jabal, he was the father of such as dwell in tents. Well, Paul was a tent maker, you see, later on. And here's the first contractor. And of such as have cattle. Here's the first ranchers, you see. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle a harp and organ. Here's the beginning of the musicians. And believe me, we can well understand when we hear some of the modern music today. Well, I'm sure that there are not many that argue that it didn't begin with Cain's civilization. Now we have here in Zilla, she also bare Tubal Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And here are the ones that are craftsmen. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naomi. And Lamech said unto his wives Ada and Zilla, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. This fellow here says, Well, if Cain got by with it, I can get by with it. After all, Cain did not slay in self-defense, but I have. And I don't know whether he did or not, but he says that that's what he did, that he slew in self-defense. And so we have these two wives. I do not know whether they entered into this or not, whether he was defending one of them or not. But be that as it may, we're not told. We find here that he feels he'll be avenged seventy and sevenfold. But our Lord said that to Simon Peter. That's how much you ought to forgive your enemy. Now, in verses 25 and 26, Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, called his name Seth. For God said she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, apparently, this was the beginning of man calling on the name of the Lord. Now we come in chapter 5 to the first section of the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 to 11. We have here the first section, world events and creation, the fall, now the flood from 5 to 9. And this gives us the background. And we have here in chapter 5 the book of the generation of Adam through Seth. 
Cain's line's been given to us, and it's dropped. It'll not be mentioned, only as it crosses the godly line. And that'll be a pattern that'll be set in the book of Genesis. Now, chapter 5, in one sense, is one of the most discouraging and despondent chapters in the Bible. And the reason is just simply this. It's like walking through a cemetery. And you find out that when God said, "...in the day that ye eat thereof, you'll die," they all died that were the sons of Adam. In Adam all die, Paul says. And now I'm reading chapter 5 of Genesis, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them. Now, will you notice? And he blessed them, and he called their name Adam, not the Adamses, but Adam, in the day when they were created. She's the other half of him. But we have this strange expression, the book of the generation of Adam. It only occurs in the beginning of the New Testament, and there it's the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Now, there are these two books, and we're already seeing there are two lines, two seeds. They're against each other, and their struggle's going to be long. The line of Satan and the line of Christ, the accepted line. Now we have here that the line that we're following now is the one through Seth. And we're told Adam lived a hundred and thirty years, and he begat a son in his own likeness. Now, when Adam was a hundred and thirty years old, how old was he? When God created Adam, did he create him thirty years old or fourteen or forty-five? I don't know. Anything would be speculation. And if he created him that old, was he that old? And, of course, God could create him that old. That, may I say, that answers a lot of the questions about the age of the earth. My, somebody says, why, these rocks are billions of years old. Maybe you just don't know. Maybe God, when he created them, created them of two or three billion years old. He could have done that, of course. I do not know, but what we're saying here that when Adam had been here 130 years, he begat a son in his own likeness. Now, Adam was made in the likeness of God, but his son is born in his likeness, and he called his name Seth. Now we start through the graveyard. What happened to Seth? Well, he lived, begat sons and daughters, and Adam did too. And we read that what happened to Adam? Well, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. What happened? He died, verse 5. And then verse 8, why, what happened to Seth? He died, and he had a son over the name of Enos. What happened to him? Verse 11, he died. But he had a son, and Canaan was his son. And what happened to old Canaan? What happened to him? Verse 14, he died too. And he had a son, May. Hallelujah. And what happened to him? Verse 17, he died. But he had a son. His name was Jared. Well, he died too. Verse 20. And then he had a son by the name of Enoch. And he lived sixteen five years and begat Methuselah. And then he died. No, he didn't die. This is a dark chapter, but this is the bright spot in it. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah. 300 years, and he begat sons and daughters, and all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. May I say to you, this is one of the most remarkable things, that in the midst of death, one man is removed from this earth, and it is said of him that he walked with God. That is quite remarkable, by the way. Only two men walked with God. We'll see in the next chapter, Noah walked with God. And now we find that Enoch walked with God. These were the two antediluvians. And there are actually only two men who did not die here in the Old Testament. And we find one of them was Enoch, and the other, of course, was Elijah. And, by the way, this is one of the few before the flood that we have any record of him at all. And we're told here that he didn't die. 
that God took him. He was translated. Now, what do we mean by translation? Well, translation means you take out a one language, a word, and put it in another language, meaning the same thing. And so Enoch was removed from this earth, translated. You see, he had to get rid of this old body he had. He had to be a different individual, but he had to be the same individual because he was translated, and the word has to be the same. Enoch was taken to heaven. We'll have more to say about that next time, but our time is up for today. And we'll pick up right there next time. Now today we return back to our story in the fifth chapter of Genesis, and we saw the story of this man Enoch. And this man Enoch, for 65 years, I don't know how he lived, but then he begat Methuselah. And then he walked with God after he begat Methuselah. I don't know that he did before. I'm sure he didn't. But if a little child in a home won't bring you to God, nothing else will, is my thinking in this connection. And then after that, for 300 years, he walked with God. He begat other children, sons and daughters. Now, all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. That is, that's how long he was on this earth. But he didn't die. It doesn't say then Enoch died. But it says Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And the only way I know to describe that is the way the little girl described it, who'd been to Sunday school when she came home. Her mother said, what'd you talk about today? That What'd the teacher tell you? And he says, well, teacher told us about Enoch, and he walked with God. And the mother says, well, what about Enoch? And the little girl put it something like this. She said, well, it seems that every day God would come by and say to Enoch, Enoch, would you like to walk with me? And Enoch would come out of his house and come down to the gate and he'd go walking with God. And it got so that he enjoyed it so that he'd be waiting at the gate of his house every day. And God would come along and say, Enoch, let's take a walk. And one day... God came by and says, Enoch, let's take a long walk. I had so much to tell you. And so they were walking and walking. And finally, Enoch says, my, it's getting late in the afternoon. He said, I better get back home. And God said to him, Enoch, you're closer to my home than you are to your home. So you come on home with me. And so Enoch went home with God. I don't know how you can put it any better than that, friends. That is exactly the story that is here. Now, of course, this is a picture, in my judgment, of what is to come. Great truths in Genesis, and I think all great truths, are here in Germain. Here's the rapture of the church. Before the judgment of the flood comes, why God remove Enoch. And now we're told here, and Methuselah lived 180 Years And we're told he lived 969 years. Now, he lived longer than Adam. And very candidly, these two men, Adam and Enoch, pretty well bridged the gap between creation and the flood. The fact of the matter is, this man, Methuselah, could have told Noah everything from the creation of the world, according to our genealogy. And I personally feel that we have a gap in the genealogy given here. And we know that is the way the New Testament opens, because we know that the genealogy that was given of the Lord Jesus leaves out quite a few, and purposely so, because there is an attempt to give it in three equal segments, and certain ones are left out. But you'll notice it follows through accurately, and here, I'm sure it's accurate, but the important thing is we may have a gap in here, and that would account, to my judgment, for the fact that man's been on this earth a great deal longer than we give him credit for being here. But that is something I don't care to go into because it's quite an involved subject. And when I completed the Through the Bible program and was in the book of Revelation, and I very candidly said that I did not know who the two witnesses were. 
and I felt sure this would happen, you'd be amazed the number of people who know who those two witnesses are. And they've all suggested to me, the ones, of course, I've heard before, but even after reading the arguments of some of them, I'm convinced that I do not know. And furthermore, I'm a little disturbed with these people because they think they know and they don't know. May I say to you, Scripture's not clear at that point, and Scripture's not clear right here. Why isn't it? Because God is not anxious to insist upon that. What he's trying to get over to you is the religious, the redemptive history of mankind on this earth. Now, we find out that the name of Methuselah means sending forth. Actually, that's the way that his name is. It means a sending forth. And that's quite interesting. If you want me to give all of it, Dr. Newberry in his book, The Deludes gives this as the meaning of Methuselah. When he is dead, it shall be sent. What will be sent? Well, a flood. As long as Methuselah lived, the flood could not come. And the very interesting thing, according to a chronology that I have here, that is the genealogy of the patriarchs, and it gives the chronology of all of them, The year that Methuselah died is the year that the flood came. That's quite interesting. When he's dead, it shall be sent. That's the meaning of his name. Why did he live longer than any other person? God kept him here just to let mankind know that God was patient and merciful. God will wait for you, friends, also, all your life. And you read over in 1 Peter 3, 20, about the long-suffering of God. Well, he was long-suffering. Now, as we continue down through the rest of this fifth chapter, why everybody's mentioned here, Lamech is mentioned, and he died, and he had a son by the name of Noah. And we are told, the last verse, Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the theory today and the popular theory in the world. It's amazing how men go blindly on accepting it. In fact, I think all philosophy concludes that human nature is inherently and innately good and that it can be improved. That's the whole program that is abroad today, that if you'll just try to improve the environment of man and his heredity, that he can really be improved. Communism and socialism seek to improve man. Arminianism means man can assist in his salvation. Modernism says man can save himself. In other words, salvation is a sort of a do-it-yourself kit that God gives to you. And then some of the cults, they tell you that human nature is totally good and there's no such thing as sin. Well, what does God say concerning man? Well, God says that man is totally evil, totally bad. That's the condition of all of us. None good. No, not one. That's the estimate of the Word of God. Now, if you will accept God's Word for it, may I say it'll give you a truer conception of life today than is given to us by others. Now, here is mankind... And we are following a godly line now. And what's it going to lead to? Is it going to lead to a millennium here upon this earth? Are they going to come to Elysian fields and establish a utopia? No. The very next chapter, chapter 6, tells us that a flood came on the earth. And the flood was a judgment from God. And so you have here in chapter 6 now the culmination of all of this. And we're going to see not only the flood, but the reason for the judgment of the flood. And I'd like to get into this chapter now because it's, I think, a very important chapter. And we find here, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of man 
that they were very fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, this sons of God and daughters of men is really something that has caused no end of discussion today. You will find, frankly, that there are today a great many good men that take the position that the sons of God here are angels. And may I say that I personally cannot accept that at all. Why? Somebody says, can't you accept it? And I recognize that most of my teachers taught the sons of God were angels. And I recognize that a great many of the present-day expositors take that position. I cannot accept it. Because if these were good angels, they would not commit this sin. And evil angels, I do not think, could ever be designated sons of God. And then the offspring that were here were men. They were not monstrosities. And I do not know why it is assumed by so many here that the offspring here were giants. It says in verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days, but it doesn't say they're the offspring. It does say this about the offspring. It says, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of man, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of all men of renown. Now, these were not monstrosities. They were men. I've been reading the argument of one man. He says, well, they were giants and they were monstrosities. No, the record here makes it very clear that the giants were in the earth before this took place. And it simply means these were outstanding individuals. You know, humanity, friends, has a tremendous capacity. Man is fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's a great truth we've lost sight of. This idea today that man has come up from some protoplasm out of a garbage can or seaweed, it's utterly preposterous. And probably it's the belief now of some scientists that evolution will be repudiated. And some folk are going to look ridiculous at that time. May I say to you that it's nothing in the world but a theory as far as science is concerned. Nothing has been conclusive about it. It is a philosophy like any other philosophy, and it can be accepted or rejected. And when it's accepted, it certainly leads to some very crazy solutions to the problems of the world, and it's gotten us into trouble throughout the world. <laughs> Anyone would think that we are the white knight riding through the world, straightening out wrongs. We are wrong on the inside ourselves. I don't know why that in this country today that we have an intelligentsia in our colleges and in our government and in our news media today and in the military that think they're super, that somehow or another they have arrived. May I say to you, <laughs> that is the delusion of the hour that men think that they're greater than they really are. Man is suffering from a fall, an awful fall. He's totally depraved today. And until that's taken in consideration, why, well, we're in trouble all the way along. Now, what you have here is nothing in the world, but as I see it, this is a book of genealogies. It's a book of the families, the sons of God, or the godly line that have come down now from Adam through Seth. And the daughters of man belong to the line of Cain. And you have here now an intermingling and intermarriage of these two lines until finally the entire line was totally corrupted. Well, not totally. One exception. That is the picture that is presented to us here. Now, I recognize, and I want to insist upon it, that the many fine expositors take the opposite view. The sons of God are actually angels. And if you follow that view, you'll be in good company. But I'm sure that most of you want to be right, don't you? So I'm sure you want to go along with me here. May I say to you, regardless of which view you take, 
Why, all of us, I hope, will be friends, because this is merely a matter of interpretation, and it doesn't have anything to do with whether you believe or do not believe the Bible, but does have to do with interpretation. Now God says here in verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And we believe that Noah preached for a hundred and twenty years, and during that time the Spirit of God was striving with man. And we're told, Peter makes it very clear, that it was back in the days of Noah that the Spirit of God was striving with men in order that he might bring them to God, but they would not turn. Well, let me read that. It's First Peter 3:19. Probably I should read verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now, they were in prison when Peter wrote. But when they were preached to, it was in the days of Noah. You say, how do you know? Read on. Verse 20, which sometime were disobedient. When were they disobedient? In prison? No. When once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. When was it? Well, it was in the long-suffering of God in the days of Noah, those 120 years. Now, what was the condition on the earth at that time? Now, let's look at it. This gives the cause that caused God to bring judgment of the flood. This is verse 5 now, chapter 6 of Genesis. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And you ought to emphasize these words. I have them marked in my Bible. The wickedness of man was great. Great is one. Every imagination, every. And that the imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. That's all it was. And that continually. And you've got four words there that reveal the condition that was upon the earth. And it repented the Lord. What repented? Why, the corruption of man repented the Lord. Now, it looks as if God had changed his mind. He created man. Now, he's going to destroy him, it looks like. It repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Now, the Lord said... I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, the fowls of the air. doesn't mention fish, because they're in the water. And he's just going to send more water. For it repented me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And why did he find grace? These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Now, why did God save Noah? He walked with God? Yes, but we are told by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, prepared an ark. Now, it took faith to prepare an ark on dry land when it hadn't even drizzled. And that took faith, by the way. And we're told that it was by faith that Enoch was translated. You see, when the church is taken out, every believer's going because it's for believers and weakest saints going out. And they're going out because God extends mercy. And we're told the mercy of God will be demonstrated at that time. Now, why the flood? Why is God... Going to send the flood? Well, we're told, verse 11, the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth. Behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. 
That is actually God's way, and it was man's way. It turned from the purpose for which God had created him. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, we find here God going to send the flood. And why is he going to send the flood? Well, let me mention several things. Man had a promise of a Redeemer, and they were told that there was coming a Savior on the earth. And that is the thing man should have been looking for. Instead of that, he turns from God, we're told. And then we have here that God provided a sacrifice for Adam and Eve. And we find that a great principle was put down, actually, with Cain and Abel. That is an eternal principle, if you please. Here are these two boys, and Cain and Abel will stand as the representatives of two great systems, two classes of people, the lost and the saved, the self-righteous and the broken-spirited, the formal professor and the genuine believer. That's what you have in these two, and that's what the human race had at this time. And then we find that these patriarchs were living so long, Adam and Methuselah bridged the entire gap here. And may I say to you, they could give, certainly, a revelation to all mankind, which they did. And then we are told over in Jude 14 and 15 that Enoch preached during that period, he prophesied. And we're also told that Noah preached during this period, and also he was building an ark. And then we're told that Enoch disappeared. That should have alerted them to something. And then they knew concerning this man Methuselah, and when he died, they should have known. And then there was the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God says that his Spirit would not always strive with man, and the Spirit of God was striving with him. Man here totally rejects God, if you please, and that brought the flood upon the earth. We find that God's Spirit striving with man on the earth, and man now turning away from God. And here are just a few, though, that do believe him, Noah and his family. And friends, we come today to the flood. Now, the entire human family had turned from God. There's none righteous, no, not one. But here is one man who walked with God. He believed God. Here's a man still trusted God by faith, Noah. Here's a man who was willing to risk building a boat on dry land. And if the rains didn't come, he certainly would be the laughing stock of the community. I think he was for 120 years. He believed God. Now, there is a striking contrast between the fact that the days of Noah to be duplicated before the Lord comes again to the earth. And that's for his, not rapture, but coming to the earth to establish his kingdom. But there's some remarkable parallels that have already taken place. For instance, the way this chapter opened, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, daughters born unto them. There was this tremendous population increase, and man had spread by that time pretty much over the earth. He was in North America, he was here, he was in Asia, in Europe, and in Africa, he'd spread in every direction. And today... We have this tremendous population explosion, and men again will increase on the face of the earth. And then there is the fact that during the great tribulation period, the Holy Spirit will no longer restrain evil. Now, he'll still be there to convert men, but he'll not be restraining evil on the earth, we're told very definitely. And God's overtures to men will be despised and rejected, and certainly they are today. Isn't it amazing that the only ones that are listened to today are the 
liberal Protestant ministers and the Roman Catholic. You hear nothing today of conservative men. Now, they've attempted to make some sort of an inroad, but they've had several conventions, and they're trying their best to get back in the mainstream. But we've come to the day that if you're going to stand for God, you're going to find out that you will not be able to talk before a TV camera very often. You've got to learn to protest and march and deny everything before that. Now, may I say to you, of course, the world in that day will be faced with the great problem of the rapture. There'll been a great number of people that have left the earth. And may I say also, there were judgments in that day, and yet they did not heed them. That was the warning that God had given them. Now, let's look at the flood itself. The first is the preparation that is made for it. God is giving ample opportunity. And here in verse 14, God says to Noah, "...make thee an ark of gopher wood." That's an indestructible wood, very much like our redwood here in California. "...room shalt thou make in it, in the ark." And the word for rooms has the idea of nests. Now, the elephant would need a room, but may I say to you that the mole wouldn't need quite that much room. They could just give him a little dirt in the corner, and that's all that he would need. And we're told, and he shall pitch it within and without with pitch. That is, it was to be made waterproof. Now, here were the instructions, and this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it, the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. The impression that most people have of the ark is the impression they were given by the little Sunday school card. It looked like a houseboat. And it was, to me, a very ridiculous sort of a travesty. It was a caricature of the ark instead of picturing it like it actually was. To begin with, may I say to you that the instructions for the building of the ark reveal that it was quite a sizable sort of an ark. Thou shalt make the ark and finish it, and it shall be 300 cubits. Now, if a cubit is 18 inches, that ought to give you some conception of how long this ark was. Now, the question arises, how could they make it substantial in that day? Well, friends, you're not dealing with caveman. You're dealing with a very intelligent man. Noah was an intelligent man. You see, the intelligence that the race has today came right through that man. And he happened to be a very intelligent man. Now, he's not making an ocean-going boat to withstand 50-foot waves. All he's doing is to have just a place for life, animal life, and man to stay over quite a period of time, by the way, but not to go through a storm, actually, just to wait out the flood. That was all. And for that reason, it might lack a great deal. And it did not have to be built as an ocean-going boat. It would give it a great deal more room. So 300 cubits, and if a cubit is 18 inches, that's 450 feet long. That's a pretty long boat, by the way. But the relative measurement is the thing that interests me. And you put this down by, for instance, the New Mexico, one of our battleships some time ago. But it was built 624 feet long, 106 and a fourth feet wide and the twenty-nine and a half, the mean draft. Well, may I say that you put down the comparisons, and it's practically the same, so that you have not a ridiculous-looking boat at all, but one that would compare favorably with the way they build ships today. We're told here, a window shalt thou make in the ark. Now, the window wasn't a little slit made in the side of the ark. Have you ever stopped to think about the stench that might be in there with all those animals in there over that period of time? Well, a window shall thou make in the ark, and the window 
went all the way around, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. Now, from a cubit, from the top of the ark, from the roof, and the roof must have overlapped that quite a bit, and underneath there was a cubit, 18 inches, that went all the way around the ark. Now, that's the way they ventilate a gymnasium today. I noticed it at the State Fair at Dallas, the building in which the animals are, have that window that goes all the way around at the top. And may I say, with all the animals they had at the State Fair in Dallas, Texas, it wasn't a bad place to be. People were sitting in there eating their meals and sleeping there. Very comfortable. And the odor was not bad. I've heard that poor Noah had to stick his head out this little window to live. Well, that's ridiculous. We're not looking at that type of a thing. That's man's imagination. It's not what the record says here at all. And friends, quit reading Sunday school cards. The pictures that were given to me when I was a kid, I've had to unlearn practically all of them. And that little ridiculous boat, I wish we could get rid of it. Now we're told, and the door of the ark, now it only had one door though, and that's important. Christ said he was the way. I'm the door to the sheepfold, by the way, and he's the door to the ark. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. Now, it was three decks here, you see. And then I take it one on top, or one on the bottom, maybe. That would make four decks. And was there a door for each one? I personally have not come to any conclusion here. I'm rather of the opinion there was only one and not one for each floor. But that, frankly, again, is beside the point. Now, God says, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. Now, God is bringing the judgment upon the earth, upon animal and bird and man. But with thee, God says, will I establish my covenant. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, the cattle after their kind, and again, you must understand, by this time, one cow would represent the entire cow family, the Holsteins and the Jerseys and the Guernseys and all the others. And then every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. Now, that is something else that we need to pay attention to. So repeated again in the next chapter that Noah wasn't a Frank Buck who went out and bring them back alive. He wasn't a big game hunter. He didn't have to go after these animals. They came to him. We're told that. And we'll see in the next chapter they did come to him. They'll come to you. Now, why would they? Animals in danger will do that. I remember the first time that we went into Yosemite Valley when our daughter was just a little thing and she'd never seen snow before. And we put her down in the snow and she began to whimper, but she quit when she looked over and saw a little deer. Well, actually, I believe we could have gone over and petted that little deer, but we didn't try it because I knew something about the danger of them turning on you and being able to kick and kill an individual. So we didn't approach them any closer. But I mentioned that to the ranger. He laughed. He said, yes, there's snow up in the high Sierras right now. And when there's snow up there and there's danger, they come down here and as tame as any animal could possibly be. But the minute that the snows melt and it becomes spring, he says they spring out of this area and you couldn't get in a country mile of any of them. Why? Well, because when an animal is in danger, he'll come. Not at the time of the flood, I don't think Noah had any problem at all. I think they all came to him. Now, in verse 21, 
Take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. And now he's to do something very practical. It took a lot of hay in the ark to feed these animals. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Now, somebody's going to say, but some of those animals ate meat. They'd eat each other. I don't think so. You say, why? Well, up to the time of the flood, apparently both man and animals were not flesh-eating. They just didn't eat flesh. No carnivorous animals, I assume. We are told of a day in the millennium when the lion and the lamb will lie down together, and the lion's going to eat straw like an ox. And that could certainly come. That probably was the original state of the animal. 